0: When a musician passes away, it's often a huge blow to fans, as we witnessed in 2016 with the passing of a surprisingly large number of greatly beloved artists, David Bowie, Leonard Cohen, Sharon Jones, and Prince, just to name a few. But what happens if that musician leaves unreleased music? Who controls the rights? And what happens if an artist dies without making that clear? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Saban, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Today, we talk to some experts in the decidedly niche field of celebrity estate law and get some good general advice for all artists on the topic. We also talk about our own experience with releasing new albums by Elliott Smith with the archivist of his estate, Larry Crane. It's all coming up on the future of what? You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Andy Mayoras. Andy, welcome to The Future of What.
1: Oh, thank you, Portia. Glad to be here.
0: So you and your wife, Danielle, work together, and you guys do something pretty interesting and different. You are both lawyers, and you specialize in celebrity estates. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Yeah, we've been practicing law for about 20 years, and my wife does wills, trusts, estate planning and things of that nature, and I represent families going through fights over wills, trust, and estates. So we thought it would be fun to kind of blend our two different perspectives and to teach people about wills and trust and try to make it a little more interesting for people. So we wrote about celebrity estates. So we use examples from all these different celebrities and what they did right, what they did wrong, so we can teach people about how to do their wills and trusts and estates the right way.
0: Well, we think that's really interesting here at The Future of What. We're a music business podcast and radio show. And the reason that we are talking to you today is because, of course, we've had so many celebrity deaths in 2016 of musicians. And, you know, I know that there are some of those estates that are in turmoil, most notably Prince's estate. So I thought it would be great to talk to you to sort of help us. You know, like you say, you give examples of mishaps so that other people can avoid doing that in the future. Can you maybe give us a good example?
1: Oh, that's right. Well, Prince is, is a prime example, and he's one that's on the top of a lot of people's minds these days. But he made the most basic of all mistakes, despite having a net worth that's now reported to be somewhere around 200 to $300 million, although it could even be well north of that. He died without even having a will. Wow! Not even a basic will, which is, is really shocking when you think of it they say about two-thirds of adult Americans don't have a will. So in that respect, he's not unusual, but it really is shocking to think of anybody with even a small, small fraction of that kind of net worth dying without a will. And because of that, his estate is in complete turmoil, and it's going to be for years and years to come.
0: I mean, your obvious basic advice is, make a will. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that,
1: that, that's, that's number one lesson from Prince's estate. And and what we see about that is the problem is it, it, when people die without a will, they have no say over what happens to their money. And many people think, "Oh, I don't want to have much money. You know, I'm certainly not prince. I'm not a celebrity." But you know, the equity in your house, life insurance, you know, if you have a 401k or even small savings, that kind of money does add up. And we do see people fighting over even estates worth you know hundred thousand dollars or less. So everybody has the potential to be worth something that's worth fighting over. So that's why we advise everyone to at least have a will, because when you don't, as we've seen in the Prince estate, Prince doesn't get to decide now. Obviously, he's gone. He has no say on what happens to his money. So we've seen a lot of fighting, because when you die without a will, the state that you live in determines who receives your assets. So in Prince's case, he's got one full sister, and he has five half-siblings. So they're all going to share in his estate. So that's seven. But then there's two other family members who are not blood relatives, but were kind of treated as families. So they've brought suit to say, hey, we should count, too, because we were kind of like related to Prince because our dad who passed, he and Prince treated each other as brothers. And Prince's dad had kind of informally adopted him. So, Judge, we should count, too. So the judge didn't let them participate in the estate, said, nope, that doesn't count. And now they're going to appeal to the court of appeals. That claim alone is going to take years and years to resolve. Do those two people get a share of this large estate or not? That was only two people. There were actually dozens and dozens of people who came forward and said, wait a minute, I'm related to Prince. I'm one of Prince's long lost secret children or nephews or brothers or something. So the court had to spend months sorting through all these estates. Making people go through DNA tests and and finally kicked all of those claims out the door. So the only two left are are these two: a nephew and a grand niece from a deceased person who considered himself to be Prince's brother when he was alive.
0: Wow, that is that is a mess.
1: And that's just the start of it. I mean, I, God, I could go on and on just talking about Prince's estate, but it it's a mess. And it just didn't have to be that way. I mean, it could have taken him 10 minutes to make out a basic will.
0: Well, that's. I'm interested. You said that two-thirds of adults in America don't have wills. Why do you think it is that so many people resist making a will?
1: There are a lot of different reasons. Some people, like Prince, are just a little peculiar. They say Prince's problem was that he didn't trust professionals and that he would work with a, a lawyer, and they would talk about it. And then a few months later, he'd fire that lawyer and work with somebody else. And then he would jump from person to person because he never really trusted anybody. He felt like he had been burned early in his career with some of the uh, recording contracts that he had signed that he felt you know, were onerous. And he didn't trust anybody. He didn't trust any professionals. So anytime somebody would recommend doing a will or something like that, he never stuck around long enough to actually see it through. A lot of people, however, it's procrastination. They think, "Oh, you know, I'll get to it someday." I mean, who likes to think about what's going to happen after they die? I mean, it's not a pleasant thought to think about, and everybody's busy. We have busy lives. We have children and parents and jobs and everything else to worry about. So it's an easy can to kick down the road. Yeah. And a lot of people just simply procrastinate, and then obviously it becomes, you know, it becomes too late, and it's it's really sad. that that it happens, and and that's why we say, you know, if you spend as much time as you spend in a year planning your yearly vacation, take that amount of planning, work with a good lawyer, and do it once, and you potentially can take care of this for the rest of your life. So it's, it's really an act of love for the people that come after you because people don't do it to help themselves although sometimes estate planning certainly can help you while you're alive. But the goal is it's an act of love for the next generation. And uh, David Bowie is really another good example we like to bring up. And he's on the opposite end of the spectrum from Prince because David Bowie did his estate planning. He did it really well. And he's one of the few celebrities with a very substantial net worth. It was estimated to be about $100 million based on uh, when he passed away last January, We've not seen any fighting. We've not even seen a hint of fighting, which is frankly very unusual and very commendable, especially because David Bowie, uh, like a lot of musicians and and the rest of us, uh, frankly, he is in a second marriage situation, or was, of course. So he was married to Amon, but he had a a son from a prior marriage. And any time you see that second marriage dynamic where you've got a spouse from a second marriage and one or more kids from a prior marriage, there's inherent potential for conflict, so it's extra important to do the right planning. And he did. He did. So his re- the reports are that about half of his estate is going to his wife, Amon. About a quarter is going to his son from an earlier marriage, and then about a quarter is going to be held for his 15-year-old daughter so that she'll receive that when she gets older. Plus, he gave a million bucks to a nanny and a couple million bucks to a personal assistant. But the point is, we haven't seen any fighting we haven't seen any trouble. It's smooth. It's been smooth sailing without having to go to probate court and have a bunch of you know mess that we've seen in Prince of the state and a lot of others. So David Bowie is a great example of what to do as opposed to what not to do, like Prince.
0: So now my understanding is it's it's pretty easy to make a will, and I think there's even like a will form on the internet. I mean, you can just like type, get a will. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And you can print out a form, and you can just put stuff down. I mean, I think one of the things that might be scary for people in, in making a will is, is well, besides thinking about your own death, which is never fun, is that maybe you think you can't change it. And I think that is, and that's and that's not true, right? You can change it any time.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that is another important rule that when it comes to estate planning is it is called the last will and testament, but it's a bit of a mis- misnomer. It really is only your last will and testament for as long as you want it to be. Wills and other state planning documents like trust, powers of attorney, all of those can be changed. As long as you're competent, you can change them at any time. Okay? You can either do it with a lawyer or you can even do it without a lawyer, although we certainly recommend working with a lawyer. But a lot of people get into trouble when they do a will. They set it aside, you know, thinking, hey, I took care of it, and then they don't go back and look at it for years and years and years. It's better than nothing. It's better than Prince's situation, certainly, but that can still lead to trouble. And a great example of that is Whitney Houston. Mm. Her will, she created that before Bobby Christina, her daughter, was born, and, and while she was still married to Bobby Brown. So it left, of course, everything to Bobby Brown and then on to any kids that came later. So when she and Bobby Brown divorced under the law, which is the case in all 50 states, if you're married leave everything to a spouse, and then you become divorced, but you don't go back and change your will, the spouse still gets cut out. The law says a divorce is just like changing the will, and even if you don't go back and change it, the spouse is still left out, which is fine. The problem here is that she never went back and specifically directed how she wanted this money to pass on to Bobby Christina. Okay? Her original will from you know, 20 years before she died said that it would be given to her children in this case, one child, starting at the age of 21, where they get 10%. Now, after Whitney Houston died, it's really a tragic story, of course, with what happened to Bobby Christina, but Whitney Houston's family members went to court, and they said, Judge, wait a minute, this isn't really what Whitney wanted, because she wouldn't want Bobby Christina to get $2 million, which is 10% of her estate value at age 21. Bobby Christina's not mature enough to handle that money now. That's not what Whitney wanted. Judge, please, let's change the will and give the money to Bobby Christina when she's older, not at age 21. Well, the judge didn't do that. In fact, the case got thrown out very quickly because just because they're saying this isn't what Whitney would have wanted, it doesn't matter. She didn't update the document. So the judge has to follow the law, which means you follow what's in the document. So Bobby Christina did start getting money at age 21, approximately $2 million. And tragically, we saw how that ended with her tragic death. And then the person appointed in charge of her estate sued Nick Gordon, blaming him for the death. And one of the claims in that was that he was after Bobby Christina's money. So you put all that together. If Bobby Christina had gotten her money later in life or if it was protected so she wouldn't be subject to somebody like Nick Gordon. Would she still be alive today? You know, we don't know, but that's really the terrible tragedy involving this. And, and you, you've got to get back to Whitney Houston. She should have updated her will. She should have ideally done a, 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 an updated trust to specify when and how Bobby Christina would get this money. So Bobby Christina would be protected.
0: Yeah, well, there are definitely a lot of horror stories. On sort of the, the flip side, you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are younger musicians sort of just starting out in their careers. And it's real hard for young people to think about, like, making a will. Yeah. But what, are the, what kind of advice would you give just everybody, the blanket advice about thinking about stuff like this?
1: Well, there, there's two things that really anybody who's 18 years or older needs to have. One is a basic will. And even if you don't want to pay to do a lawyer, even if you want to do an, a form off the internet, or even if you want to sit down and handwrite out, as long as it's in your own handwriting and you sign and date it at the bottom and you make it clear this is what you intend to be your will and this is what you want to happen with your assets and who's going to be your the executor of your estate, you know, even that band-aid approach is better than nothing. Okay, So that's number one, to at least do a basic will. It, you know again look at Jimi Hendrix you know when he died he was only 27 he at the time frankly wasn't worth a lot of money obviously he had a great deal of value to come based on all of his his music and all of his recordings and and how much money that that ultimately brought in for his estate but he didn't even have a basic will so the point is don't put off till tomorrow make out a will now that's number 1 number 2 is a power of attorney Living will document. Now there's different names for these in different states, but the point is nobody is promised tomorrow. And if God forbid you get in a car accident or have a, a disabling condition, who do you want to make decisions for you? Do you want the court to have to appoint somebody to make your decisions if you can't, or do you want a family member or a close friend or a spouse to be able to make decisions for you if you're not able to? Again, those are very basic documents. For medical decision-making power, there's usually forms that are available at hospitals. There's also forms available online. But the point is, as soon as you're 18 and you're an adult, if God forbid something happens to you, your parents or other family members cannot start making decisions for you, even if it's a life and death decision, such as needing an emergency surgery or or whether to, to pull the plug, God forbid... So the point is, you plan for that ahead of time. You sign a document. You give somebody decision-making authority in case you can't make those decisions for yourself. And that's a basic document that every adult needs.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andy Mayores. Thanks for being with us today on The Future of What?
1: Oh, you're very welcome, Porsche. I enjoyed it and look forward to speaking with you again in the future.
0: I Figured You Out by Elliot Smith. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at K-R-S-F-O-W. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Conrad Rippey. Conrad, thanks so much for joining us today on The Future of What?
2: Thank you for having me, Portia.
0: So, Mm -hmm. as you know, today on The Future of What, we are talking about the sort of what do we do when an artist passes away? You know, there were so many famous celebrity deaths in 2016 that it really made us start to think, what do people do? How do people function? What are the next steps when an artist passes away? Especially an artist. I mean, Prince is such an obvious example, right? With, you know, unreleased material and question marks about the heirs and stuff like that. So I wanted to talk to you because I know that you handle the estates of at least two deceased musicians. So, let me ask you first, did you get into that on purpose or did it sort of happen just <laughs> accidentally?
2: It happened completely accidentally and it, because it's all over the internet, I can I can talk about the first artist I started working with. I was a big fan, a big fan of Jeff Buckley and he passed away, as you know, almost exactly 20 years ago and through a series of people who knew people Jeff's mother found out that I was a big fan and that I also worked in the music industry as a lawyer. She realized that she needed a lawyer of her own to represent the interests of his estate. And that's how I got into it. And then the other representations I've undertaken just came from that initial one.
0: So what are the special features of representing an estate for a deceased artist? Like, what do you have to think about that people don't have to think about who have living artists?
2: Right. Well, the first thing, Portia, is you have to find out if the artist who has passed away has a will. And you mentioned the Prince Estate, the start of our conversation. And from what I have read in the media, as incredible as it may seem he passed away without a will. And when an artist dies having written a will, generally they designate someone quite specifically who is their contact person to deal with their intellectual property rights, their catalog, their unreleased material, whatever. If they die without a will, which has been incidentally the case with every estate I represent, then these intellectual property issues just go to whoever their closest heir is, which if you're not married is your parents if they're surviving or your siblings if they're not. So at that point, in answer to your question, you just have to begin to deal with the record company, the music publishing company, everyone who has an interest in the intellectual property rights of the deceased artist and try to get them to turn their frame of mind away from dealing with the artist who has now passed away and instead to start focusing on the desires and the plans of the heir because that is now the person who is in control. And that is a slow ship to turn around.
0: Oh, interesting. So really you're dealing with people who had contracts, let's say, with the deceased artist, and they're used to working with that artist and thinking about what he or she might want. And now you're saying, well, now you have to start thinking about these other people. These other people are going to step in and, and their wants are going to be paramount.
2: That's right. And whether or not these people that have the contractual relationships with the artist like it, this is the new person who's calling the shots. And frequently, this is someone who was quite close to the artist but may not be someone who is particularly well known to these contracting parties and that's why in every case where I've taken on the representation of an estate I have come in as a new person rather than someone who's already working with the artist because it's basically now there's a new team there's a new team and these people who've generally like I said were close to the artist are not always people who the record labels and the music publishing people have even met.
0: And interestingly, I mean I immediately think a lot of the people, I mean if you're the parents of a musician or the siblings of a musician, there's no there's no saying you understand anything about the music business. That you understand anything about that.
2: That's right. Frequently these are novices to the music industry. They know about it from their child or their siblings, you know, experiences but they don't really have any first-hand knowledge. And so while at the same time I am working with the contract people, record labels, the publishers, whomever, to try to sort of get things lined up on that end, there's a lot of education that has to go on on my end so that I bring the air up to speed on what's really going on in the music industry. It's a, and it, Which is one reason why, Portia, it's always better to have a will. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> That's, I mean, listen. If we if we all learn nothing from this particular episode, it's that, right? I mean, it's it is always terrifying.
2: Yes, you look at what's happening with friends, and you're going to realize it's always better to have a will. <laughs>
0: you know, I always liked what my husband used to say about contracts for our record company. The reason that you have a contract is so that 20 years later, you guys remember what you agreed to. And I always thought That's that was exactly a, right. Such a nice way to put it. Because honestly, I don't remember what I had for breakfast last week. I always think, like, if I was in a murder investigation, they would get me because they, I'd be, they'd be like, where were you? I'd be like, uh... You know, I just... I am suck at remembering, you know, specific details.
2: Well, you know, eyewitness testimony is the least reliable testimony, <laughs> and it, it is... People never remember correctly. They never do. So, <laughs> it's always a good idea to have a will, and that way, also... The person you've designated as your intellectual property executor, the designated heir for your catalog or whatever, they have advanced warning. They may be called upon to know something about the music industry, which gives them a head start in case something happens.
0: Right. You know, it's not business as usual anymore because you're dealing with people who are in grief, who are probably often just so upset by the death of the musician that it's hard for them to think about business details. I would imagine that's a big part of it.
2: It is. In my experience, which is limited but greater than some, in my experience, even though grieving the heirs, their real mission statement is always what would the artist have wanted. And they tend to try to figure out what that is by talking to uh, other people that were close to the artist creatively, whatever. Frequently, however, there's a push from other forces to try to exploit the legacy of the artist and exploit not in a negative way, but just to get releases out, get songs licensed, whatever. And so it's a balancing act. And it's always tricky because really, if you're the heir, especially if the artist didn't designate you in a well, you're going to be questioned from any angle. You know, the fans are going to question what you're doing. The labels or the music publishers are are going to have their own point of view. And and it's a real balancing act.
0: What would you say for yourself is sort of the biggest challenge you face in your job?
2: Specifically in the realm of dealing with the estate? Yeah. Yeah. I would say it is trying to be true to the legacy of what that artist would have wanted when he or she is no longer in the picture to say, that's what I want. And that's what I don't want. While at the same time, trying to build on that legacy and get more people familiar with that artist's work. Now, sometimes you have people who pass away like Prince, obviously who, you know, it's the thumb is more in the scale of what would he have wanted. People are, pretty exposed to his music, and sometimes there are artists who pass away before they've really hit their peak of their success, someone like Jeff Buckley, and then the, the balancing act, the tricky part becomes how do we expand his legacy in a way that is consistent with what his vision would have been and what he wants, and that's tricky, and truthfully, the people who are in the best position to judge that tend to be the people who are the heirs.
0: And that's basically how it works out, is the heirs get to decide, right? They call the shots in terms of how we're going to, you know if there's unreleased material, how are we going to put it out there? What's the right thing to do? What's the right next step to take?
2: That's generally the case. It depends on what the type of contractual relationship the uh, deceased artist entered into. Some record contracts are much, more unforgiving in terms of giving the record label ultimate say than others. But generally, in my experience, record companies have ultimately behaved honorably. And at the end of the day, let the air call the shots.
0: Wow, Conrad, I can't believe you said the sentence, record labels have behaved honorably. (laughs) I'm going to have to put that as a headline somewhere. I I know
2: who I'm talking to, my friend.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. I
2: did say ultimately. (laughs) I did say ultimately. (laughs) That's hilarious.
0: Fantastic. Well, Conrad Rippey is an entertainment lawyer in Manhattan. And Conrad, thank you so much for joining us today on the future of what?
2: Portia, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Angeles Live by Elliot Smith. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Larry Crane. Larry, welcome back to The Future of What?
3: Yeah, it's awesome to be here again. Love the show.
0: Yay, thanks. So today we're talking about artists' estates, and you and I have worked for years now together on the estate of Elliot Smith. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you just tell us first off how you, because you're the official archivist amongst other many hats that you wear. Too many hats. (laughs) You're the official archivist of the estate of Elliot Smith. How did that come about?
3: I think I kind of started it on my own accidentally when we started Jackpot. When Jackpot Recording Studio began, Elliot was brought in as sort of a non-partner, but what was going on was that I knew that studios shouldn't have partners. And so we had a little meeting over beers and I said, do you want to work out of Jackpot? That'd be great but I don't want a partner, but I'll work out a deal for you. And so we started doing stuff and I would see all his reels and, and dat tapes laying around. I started just kind of backing up a lot of his dat tapes because he was not an organized kind of person,
4: you know, (laughs) like he wouldn't
3: write notes on things or anything. So I would just see things laying around. I would just make a copy and make a note and put it aside. (laughs) And so years later, after he passed away, I was supposed to work on, from a basement on the Hill. And then Elliot passed away. Like, 10 days before I was going to do to fly down there. Wow. And so I didn't get involved in any of that. Like Rob Schnapp and Joanna Bomey kind of took over the mixing and stuff of that. And I was like, that's fine. You know, I didn't feel like it was something, you know what I mean? Right. Felt like it was something I was supposed to be like handed. And then like a few years after that, or whenever it was Gary Smith, Elliot's father approached me and said, would you like to help out on an expanded version of either or? And that, as you well know, is what turned into New Moon. Right. Because we found too much stuff. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. And that was quite a long process. I kind of came mm-hmm. in at the tail end of, of that, yeah. those sessions, but I remember there were just hours and hours of listening to archived stuff that we hadn't heard before, and we just, everybody, I remember the one session that I came w- yeah. with that everybody was in tears.
3: Yeah. It was crazy, because uh, well, what what happened was, When he asked me to do that, I said, you know, the real question is, are you going to get an archivist? And he's like, oh. And I was like, well, you don't know what's on these reels. I don't know what's on these reels. The label doesn't know what's on these reels. What are we going to do with this material? And so Gary asked me if I wanted to do that. And I am assume he talked to uh, Elliot's mother, too. Mm -hmm. And I had to think about it. But I said, yeah, because I felt like I could still talk to, like, you know, Rob Schnapp and Tom Rothrock I'm still friends with. And Neil and Tony from Miser and Sam Coombs. Like, I felt like everyone around is still my friend, thank God. Joanna Balmay, of course. And I could just qu- ask them questions for help.
0: <laughs> right. I guess yeah. to be clear for the listeners, you know, when Elliot passed away, his estate passed to the direction of his parents. Like, yeah. they owned everything. But like Larry just said, we had a ton of material. We just had all this stuff that was in reels and dats and and that really nobody knew what it was.
3: There was a lot of reels that were in Iron Mountain storage Mm -hmm. in Hollywood. And then there were other materials. There was a box full of dat tapes that were just at his father's house. And there was other random things here and there. Uh, Sean Krogan had a reel at home. I mean, (laughs) it just started becoming like, oh, hey, I've got this. Oh, I've got that. Right, and then fans sometimes would even send me stuff, which is, you know, of dubious origin. But you know, I've archived some of the live shows they've sent. You know, even if they're just MB3s, I'll make a note. And, right. But what I started doing is, I said yes to, to taking that job as an official archivist. But I kind of started the job after I did the New Moon record, which right. is kind of confusing. Yeah, very confusing. <laughs> I wish the timeline was different, or I had started the archive earlier, because along the way, you know, you find more materials. Mm-hmm. And you go, oh, we could have, uh, you know. And the other thing is that when I started the archive work, I had everything that we could find gathered up and taken to a place called Mr. Toads in the Bay Area. And Tardin there at Mr. Toads did all the transfers of the analog tapes, even the digital tapes mm-hmm. and stuff because he's an expert and has all the different old machines and he gets the highest quality. And and the irony is that if we did New Moon today, I could actually make a better sounding record. <laughs> You know, not even would just you, the song choices. I couldn't. It would just physically sound better because right. the transfers off a of tape were better. But as you know, as yeah. someone
0: whose recording is your your life, you know, I probably in ten years we could say the same thing again. Yeah, about we could remaster anything, and we'll right? remaster
3: either or five more times. <laughs> Hopefully not,
0: because everything could sound better because the technology it's, keeps changing.
3: The thing about archiving is that the analog tapes are the real goldmine. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason that is, is that when the digital technology takes leaps, like the quality of the audio converters now is far better than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And that's one reason we could talk about later, but that's one reason that why either or was able to be remastered and sound better right. without physically just changing it, but just getting a better quality of signal. right? So with the analog tapes, you can keep extracting a little bit more information you know, getting a better head stack and a better quality tape deck with more stable motors and capstans and reels and all this stuff. It's its so technical. It's kind of geeky. That's what I do. <laughs> but you're able to just pull a little more detail off of the tapes. Right. Yeah. And when Tardin took the same half-inch 8-track tapes that we'd done a lot of the New Moon mixes from and was able to pull a little bit better data off of those or, or audio, I was like, oh, so if you if you listen like to the version of Angel in the Snow, that's on Up in the Air, it's a remix wow. of the New Moon track, and it's slightly clearer, and I was had better noise reduction. It was a, recorded really quietly to tape, so there's a lot of hiss, mm. and the quality of the noise reduction I was using too for that one is a little clearer. Right. So you can hear this little. You could play the New Moon one and that, and they're, they're the same balance, but they're a different mix. I figured. Why not just make that one a little... And they wanted to have an intro loop where there was an extended instrumental section on that movie. So So I had to do something like that anyway. And I was like, well, here's a different... And Actually, on the introduction to Elliot Smith is that mix too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was kind of sneaky, sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, one of the things I think is important to say is that when an artist passes away, it's like what we're talking about now. Mm -hmm. We who are in charge of this material, like especially when they pass away like Elliot with lots of stuff Mm -hmm. that hasn't been released, and I mean, I'm thinking about prints. You know, we've talked to some people who are working yeah. on those estates or, you know, that estate has been in the news a lot because there is no will. There's no, it's no clear successors. Mm-hmm.
3: Like that's a, that's a really troubled situation.
0: Right. And what do you yeah. do with all that material? And it's someday, eventually someone's going to have to have a say and it's going to be, I think it's gonna be a big mess forever, but right. <laughs> for years, but in our situation, thank goodness it was clear cut, you know, obviously. But what's interesting about it is that it involves his, family and friends to such a great extent, like everything we do, you know, we don't just get to do it. You know, it involves yeah. talking to people. Like you said, you're in touch with all right. these. Thank goodness you're still friends with all these people. You can go back and ask them questions like, hey, where was he when
3: he recorded this? Just little details. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you just go, oh, aha. You know, you'll, you'll put yeah. a clue together. I think that it is nice. I, I really like Gary and I like Bunny, Elliot's mother, quite a bit. I always have a good time visiting or chatting with all, all of them. But the thing that I always have to tell people is I'm not in charge,
5: Right, right. <laughs> you know,
3: I mean, I've made lots of suggestions, as you well know, over the years, like this could be this, this could be that here's the stuff that's here because you have to kind of make a bit of a qualitative judgment on this material if you get mathematical about the archiving process and then go well here's 560 different iterations of songs and things that you could put on this next five song release you know that that's just an impossible thing to sort out right so over the years i've kind of like made a lot of note of what are unique songs or u- unique versions of songs and so that i have that you know kind of go here's this here's that you know to the label to you guys and to the family just so they can sort of pick from that and, right. and understand and it's hard because you're making a little bit of a judgment, but you're also trying not to be a, you have to do, you know, you have to do this or, you know, but I've had lots of suggestions like with, with either, or I definitely was very worried. I didn't want to ever see a disc that had a, extra songs tacked onto the same disc right. as that right. album. Cause I think that would be weird. I just know that from aesthetic you know, point of view, Sure. you know, that was something I was, I was. I kept, when he had our phone calls, I was like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about that because yeah. Kill Rockstars on March 10th is going to be releasing this extended edition of Either Or for the 20th anniversary of, of that record. That's yeah. Elliot Smith's most popular record. And, you know, so we started planning this over a year ago. We all started talking about it because we wanted to commemorate the several, 20th anniversary. Several years ago. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Been thinking about it for a while. Right.
0: <laughs> So we would have conversations, you and I and his parents, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's taken a really long time to shape it, but I think that's a good way of thinking about it, that instead of, you know, it's not you or I got to say this is what we want, you know, his parents had the final decision, of course, but... We did get to say things like <laughs> you said. I wouldn't want to see a first disc that had stuff tacked on, yeah. which I totally agree with because that's yeah. sort of in the that's not the spirit of that. Yeah. So l- let's talk about the extended edition of Either or. So when we finally whittled it down and we decided we were going to do some studio tracks, but mm-hmm. not a lot, just a yeah, small number, just a couple, and then we were going to do these five live tracks that yeah. had been really happily multi-track recorded at Yo Yo Go-Go yeah. in '97. So tell us about how you worked with all that material.
3: Yeah. I mean, initially it, it's just sort of presenting it. There's an Elliot iTunes session. You can open up and hear sometimes just rough mixes of things, you know, so that you know that it exists and to say, this is the rough mix of the tracks on real two, eight, nine, zero, 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 four, one dash song four, you know, <laughs> like, uh-huh. it's, a, it's crazy, you know? So initially it's like listening to the rough mix is kind of, you know, we had some different orders and versions of bonus disc ideas floating around initially. There were two previous iterations that were completely different than what we have, except for a couple of songs. And so what I had to do then was to go, once we decided we were going to use these songs from Yo-Yo Gogo, go that, that Pat Maley and his crew had generously given us the original ADAT to back up and archive and everything, and rights to, to use these songs, which is fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Pat. Very much. I mean, very generous. And other people would, there's people out there that would be asking for, you know, $5,000 or being jerks about it or something. And, you know, in his case, he's just like, I wanted to see this taken care of properly, you know. Yeah. And it's, a lot of people have done that with Elliot's material, thank God. So we had that tape, you know, years ago he'd send it down to me. And it's the only multi-track live concert thing that I can recall from the era preceding DreamWorks. And the thing about that is like, you know, you can have a decent quality, like, you know, dat recording, a two track mix or a board tape, but usually the balance is kinda out, you know, like maybe that's it's being you it's what you're recording what's off the console, which is used for sound reinforcement. And in this case we had, you know, some mics on the stage, some mics in the room, a direct guitar, um, DI, and then a vocal mic. And so I could really go in and kind of just clean up those tracks and mix it. Wow, a lot of digital restoration work i use this thing called isotope rx which is a noise reduction kind of attenuation software and that allowed me to go in and say just let's listen to the guitar di track wow and and then what's really funny is Elliot used this special pickup a really cheap pickup by a company called lawrence it's like a 300b or something like that and it's actually it fits in the sound hole of his he was playing a yamaha acoustic guitar it fits in the sound hole and it acts more like an electric guitar pickup like with the magnets and coils as opposed to like a piezo like typical guitars will plug in and have those piezo pickups built into the bridge and they have kind of a twangy weird tone you'll hear that in a lot of live recordings and this electric guitar style pickup has more of an even tone and sounds actually a little electric but more like an acoustic guitar wow so by using that track i was able to clean it up i was able to in the isotope balance out some notes if they were just notes that boomed out a little bit because they were the strings were closer to the pickup or anything mm-hmm. even all that out i was able to clean up the vocal i was able to amplify words that were sung off mic a little bit by increasing their fundamentals in the bottom end and all these little details and cleaning up clicks and pops and you know if you pl- unplugged the guitar or if some little weird sound was just happening right and i could clean all those things up and then mix it aesthetically you know to get a nice balance of some room sound and and i kept in all as much of the talking yeah, it's, there were there were spots great. that were just dead silent for a while, so those are out. But <laughs> I kept it in anything of interest because I feel like he's Elliot's not with us anymore, right. and it's nice to hear him. He was a funny guy, and and he was he, he was always kind of self effacing on stage and and humble, and then he would spit out like an amazing guitar figure or something. So to hear that, you know, yeah, shouting out to his sister yeah, Ashley, I love that. that's so sweet. Is Ashley here, you know, you're yeah. like, oh man. You know, it's cool, and it, yeah. and and he's and he's like laughing when people are like, "Play the song about the girl," because they want to hear "Say Yes." Oh you yeah, know, and there's things like that in there, yeah. so it's pretty funny. There's there's some hilarious stuff, yeah, uh, from that recording. Actually, that ended up on the Heaven Adores You soundtrack. That oh, version, yeah. So mixing that was was a real treat. And then the "I Figured You Out" demo that he did, that Mary Lou Lord covered later, and that was on. Oh my God! It was on DA88 tapes. Tascam had this eight-track digital format, and the Heat Miser guys, when they signed to Virgin Records, they took all the advance money and rented a house for like six months or a year—I'm not quite sure—and they bought some D88s and they bought a mixing board and all this stuff, and they started recording their own record, which became Mike City's Sons. And so all the guys had a key, and Elliot would go in and record his own demos and things. And I think that like Cupid's Trick and maybe Punch and Judy, some other songs kind of started there or, or had, had some evolution in that space. And he went in and did the demo. He recorded the song that's on Martian Saints, the EP. He recorded that version there. But before that, he and Neil Gust from Heatmiser went in and recorded this demo version of I Figured You Out. And so that, when I was, was working on New Moon, Joanna Balmain kept saying, there's a version of I Figured You Out. There's a, and it wasn't on any of those reels. Because it was on these digital tapes. Oh, wow. And those digital tapes had been sitting in jackpot for, you know, like a decade or yeah. something. And finally, when Elliot built New Moon, I sent them down there. Like Sam Coombs came by with a van and took a bunch of stuff down to New Moon. Uh, not New Moon, New Monkey. New Monkey. Studios, yeah. yeah. So when he built New Monkey, they took all the tapes down there. And then eventually the tapes showed back up. And I was like, oh, I better digitize these. <laughs> thinking it's all just heat miser. Oh, wow. And there was all this other music on there.
0: My God. So the job of our, an archivist is like <laughs> kind of like a detective. I mean, it's really kind it's, of...
3: It is. It's every time you make an assumption, you're going to find out you're wrong <laughs> later on. If you're going to say, those are all Heat Miser songs, right. you'll find something else in there. So that's. Yeah. I, in fact, I just dumped a tape over, I don't know if I can say who the artist was, but last night I dumped over a tape for, a let's just say, one of the premier punk bands from Portland who uh, had an album that said something about record collectors so uh <laughs> and i was dumping the tape over and their song would come on and the guys would look at each other and like was this released i don't know if this was released you know and you're kind of excited yeah because you know, you're like there might be a bonus track here yeah and then there were compilation trials like, oh wait no that was on a compilation that's a b-side you know and also we did i dumped over some bikini kill stuff recently oh wow for uh, for their record label and you know we're and once again like made a real quick rough mix like is there anything on here that's not on the record because yeah i don't know there might be be that would be amazing i mean that's that's one of the biggest things i mentioned earlier is like knowing what in a blunt way like a kind of a creepy money way say what are the assets right you know and i don't think that way (laughs) i think of art but what is on here and what you know are there bonus tracks that at the time you the record could only be x amount of minutes long you put them aside or just alternate versions of songs that later in a historical way or of interest.
0: Right. And I mean, you know. it doesn't even need to be an art, when an artist passes away. I mean, I'm thinking about Bikini Kill. Man, if you could unearth an unheard Bikini Kill track, studio track, that <laughs> yeah. would I mean, people would go bananas for that. I would. I,
3: I think that's some, yeah, there's fans that want to hear it. Yeah, know? absolutely. And, you know, sometimes things don't need to be heard and that's kind of a hard call, call to make. Yeah. You know, you're, you're like. <laughs> Don't need to be. Heard. And sometimes, you know, I mean, sometimes there's cases where you know, like the, the fam, like in Elliot's case, there's some stuff where the family's just uncomfortable, right? You know, you that's know, right. and I can't talk about that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and I think that's you know, both you and I are in the same position, which is that ultimately we want to do the right thing. We want yeah. to protect Elliot's legacy and release the music in a respectful fashion and we want to make his family feel comfortable
3: yeah moving forward it would be weird if like say the control was completely out of their hands and people were just like digging through and going here's another one put it out you know like oh yeah and i think you you have to kind of balance a little bit of like let's create a, a public archive where people can hear some of these alternate songs and things but let's not just look like we're strip mining and 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 panning for gold in the dirt, you know, and trying to do anything, so you have a weird balance there, you know. Yeah. I know that if Elliot was still alive, he would think that sometimes we'd be like, no, don't don't bother with that song; it's it's garbage, you know. And, right. he, and or he would say, I want to re. I was already starting to, because there were songs that are on New Moon and of that era that he started rewriting around the Basement Era. Right. Well, Just and different lyrics, and
0: he was such a prolific songwriter and such a you know he revised too Mm -hmm. you know he would go back and revise and and do new lyrics and stuff so i mean if he was if he was still alive today we don't we don't know what he would have done because he could have you know how many more albums could he have written and how many songs could he have updated like
3: i think he would be mortified that you'd want to put out the stuff he kind of set aside because he would want to rewrite it well right (laughs) re-record it and all these things because that would always be his he'd be like I could do better, you know.
5: Right,
0: but unfortunately, that's what's left us. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't. Not, yeah, I
3: never think it's bad that we work in this capacity and put new things out. It's just, it's, and it's sad that that's the end of what it all is. But it's just funny to think, because having known him that well, I knew that he. I know that he'd be like, nope. <laughs> we'll right. On to the that. next <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny.
0: It is funny. Well, Larry Crane, thank you so much for being with us yeah. today on the future of what, and thanks, thanks for
3: everything you do. Oh, and thanks for having me here.
0: Hey everyone, I'm excited to announce that Kill Rockstars has teamed up with Sean Cannon of the Guest List to produce Say Yes, an Elliot Smith podcast. Right now, check out part of Sean's interview with Kevin Devine and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.
5: Okay, tell me your name and what do you do? Elliot Elliot Elliott Elliot, Elliot. 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 Elliot, Elliot. Elliot. Elliot.
6: Elliot
4: Steve uh, Elliott
5: Smith. I play music.
4: I'm Sean Cannon from Louisville Public Media and The Guest List. It's the first edition of Say Yes, an Elliot Smith podcast. 20 years ago, Kill Rockstars released Elliot's landmark record, Either Or, which, in the minds of most folks, uh, is his most important. And over the next six weeks, we're going to celebrate that anniversary in a lot of different ways. Now, if you're wondering exactly what that looks like, <laughs> well, so am I. Yeah, I had a very specific plan for what I thought this would be when I started, but as I gathered audio, I realized I was just going to have to throw it out the window. Now, what that means is there's no narrative arc or format for the series. So sometimes you'll hear stories from folks who knew Elliot. Sometimes you'll hear in-depth conversations about either or, and the song's on it. Sometimes we'll talk about pivotal moments in his career, and then sometimes you'll just get to find out what makes his music mean something to different people. Now, with that in mind, I figured the best place to start would be where I actually started, my first interview for this project, because it gives a pretty good overview of what made Elliot's music so special and what made him so special as a musician. That interview was with musician Kevin Devine, who almost met Elliot Smith once, before uh, deciding against completely embarrassing himself in the end.
6: My relationship to what I thought of, I never met him. I was in a hallway with him once at a show he played in uh, Jersey and I was drunk and high and I saw him and I was kind of like, how do you go up to someone and say everything I think about this guy and his music and not sound crazy? Um, Particularly when, you know, this was late, this was right before he passed, six months before he passed. I didn't feel like the appropriate Time to go up and harangue him with my um, intense passion for his work or, <laughs> or whatever, uh, and his transformative impact on my life. But um, I think Elliot, as a person, I don't know him. I've I've gotten close with some people who did, and I you know there was different Elliots, uh, but but his impact on me as a person is is was certainly. He seems to carry himself with a certain air of um, I'm not talking about the depressiveness or whatever else, just he seems to just kind of be into his work, and uh, for all of the feeling and that yes, that down to the bone thing, really it's also just it's such tasteful, thoughtful music. it never. It evokes a feeling, all those chord progressions, all those tone choices, all of them, beyond the lyrics, beyond his voice, beyond... But also, he never sacrificed craft for feeling. It was not, like, messy music. It was not, like, histrionic music. And I think that in some way mirrored his externalization as a person. Musically speaking, I just don't think there's there's been a sophisticated and nuanced a songwriter rock songwriter or whatever in the past 25 years 30 years I mean I don't know I think he was like a generational talent and I think that it gets obscured somewhat by the story is particularly the ending but if you sit there with his music it's particularly once he's able to like from either or on once he has like songs are always there but once he has the like confidence and playing field to to like express himself arrangement wise and you know it's kind of crazy if you step back and listen to those records and realize like 90% of what you're hearing is one person um which also is maybe was too much I don't know that could be like a David Foster Wallace thing or something you might have just too much happening up there too much current going through
0: This podcast will air every Friday leading up to the release of our 20th anniversary either-or extended edition album on March 10th. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Elliot Smith and, of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol. And is produced by Will Watts and Anna McClain. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week.